Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 382 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Mars 2 and 3 and Luna 18 and 19. After the U.S. first put a man on the moon and the Soviet Union landed a rover that could freely move across the moon's surface, the USSR's next goal would be more ambitious to finally touch down on Mars. The Soviets had been developing a program to send a spacecraft to Mars since 1960. The Soviets' first attempt was Mars 1, also known as 1962 Beta NU-1, also known as Mars 2MV-4 and Sputnik 23. It was an automatic interplanetary station launched in the direction of Mars on November 1, 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mars 1's mission was to fly by the planet at a distance of about 11,000 kilometers. Mars 1 was designed to photograph the surface and send back data on cosmic radiation, micrometeoroid impacts, Mars's magnetic field, radiation environment, atmospheric structure, and possible organic compounds. After leaving Earth orbit, the spacecraft and the Molniya booster four-stage separated and the solar panels were deployed. Early telemetry indicated that there was a leak in one of the gas valves in the orientation system, so the spacecraft was transferred to gyroscopic stabilization. It made 61 radio transmissions, initially at two-day intervals and later at five-day intervals, containing a large amount of interplanetary data. On March 21, 1963, when the spacecraft was at a distance of 107 million kilometers from Earth on its way to Mars, communications ceased probably due to the failure of the spacecraft's antenna orientation system. Mars 1's closest approach to Mars probably occurred on June 19, 1963, at a distance of approximately 193,000 kilometers, after which the spacecraft entered an orbit around the sun. The mission was thus deemed a failure. Which brings us to Mars 2 and 3, Early in the next decade, the Soviets continued their Mars program with the uncrewed space probes Mars 2 and 3, 
they were part of a series of uncrewed Mars landers and orbiters launched by the Soviet Union beginning May 19, 1971. Mars 2 and 3 missions consisted of identical spacecraft. In contrast with Mars 1, Mars 2 and 3 had orbital compartments and descent modules. The orbiter was identical to the Venera 9 bus. The type of bus orbiter was the 4MV. They were both launched by a Proton-K heavy launch vehicle with a Block D upper stage. Overall responsibility for the project was the chief designer at the Lavochkin Design Bureau, Yori Babakin. But V.G. Paramoff, the lead designer for Mars and Venus spacecraft, was in charge of the mission. Now, a quick word on the hardware used to get Mars 2 and 3 to the Red Planet. To place an object in Mars orbit, you have to have a rocket with a pretty good punch. The Soviets chose the Proton-K, also known as the UR-500K. The UR stood for Universal Rocket. The baseline Proton-K was a three-stage rocket. It was designed by Chief Designer Chalomi from OKB-52. Thirty were launched in this configuration with payloads including all of the Soviet Union's Salyut space stations, all Mir modules, with the exception of the docking module which was launched on the United States Space Shuttle, and the Zarya and Zevda modules on the International Space Station. It was intended to launch Chalomi's crewed TKS spacecraft and succeeded in launching four uncrewed test flights prior to the program's cancellation. It was also intended for Chalomi's 20-ton LKS space plane, which was essentially a copy of the U.S. space shuttle that was never put into operation. Like other members of the Universal rocket family, the Proton-K was fueled by unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. These were hypergolic fuels which burn on contact, avoiding the need for an ignition system, and can be stored at ambient temperatures. This avoids the need for low temperature tolerant components and allowed the rocket to sit on the pad fully fueled for long periods of time. In contrast, Cryogenic fuels would have required periodic topping up of propellants as they boil off. The fuels used on the proton were, however, corrosive and toxic and required special handling. The Russian government paid for the cleanup of residual propellant in spent stages that impacted downrange. Proton components were built in factories near Moscow, then transported by rail to the final assembly point near the pad. The first stage of a Proton-K consisted of a central oxidizer tank and six outrigger fuel tanks. 
This separated as one piece from the second stage, which was attached by means of a lattice structure interstage. The second stage ignited prior to first stage separation, and the top of the first stage was insulated to ensure that it retained its structural integrity until separation. The 21 meter high and 7.4 meters in diameter first stage used six RD-253 engines designed by Valentin Glushko. The RD-253 is a single chamber engine and uses a staged combustion cycle. The first stage guidance system was open loop which required significant amounts of propellant to be held in reserve. The stage was capable of producing 2.35 million pounds of thrust. The 14 meter high, 4.2 meter in diameter second stage used four RD-210 engines capable of producing 539,000 pounds of thrust. The third stage was powered by an RD-210 engine and four veneer nozzles with common systems. The veneers provided steering, eliminating the need for gimbling of the main engine. They also aided stage separation and acted as ullage motors. Ducts built into the structure channeled veneer exhaust before stage separation. The third stage guidance system was also used to control the first and second stages earlier in the flight. Many launches used an upper stage to boost the payload into a higher orbit. In the case of Mars 2 and 3, the Block D upper stage was used. The Block D uses liquid oxygen and kerosene as propellants and has one single chamber RD. 58 main engine. The liquid oxygen tank has a spherical shape. The kerosene tank is toroidal, inclined to 15 degrees for better fuel extraction. With the engine mounted in the center of the torus, the main pump is mounted on the engine. Block D weighs 3.5 tons during liftoff, but some parts are jettisoned and the dry mass in space is 2.5 tons. It is 5.7 meters in length and generates 18,800 pounds of thrust for 600 seconds burn time. Which brings us to the probe. Of course, the best description is a picture which you can see at the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. But for now, we will describe the spacecraft with words. Remember, Mars 2 and 3 had an orbiter and a lander. I will start with the orbiter. The orbiter was a Type 4MV. The 4MV planetary probe stood for fourth generation Mars-Venus probe. It was a designation for a common design used for Soviet unmanned probes to Mars and Venus. It was an incremental improvement of the earlier 3MV probes 
and was used for Mars missions 2 through 7 and Venera missions 9 to 16. The same base design was used for some Earth orbiting space observatories. The spacecraft had a height of 2.8 meters and a solar panel span of 6.7 meters. The central section of the bus had a diameter of about 1 meter and contained propellant. The main engine was a KRD-425A. It was encircled by a conical instrument compartment with a diameter of 2.35 meters at the base. The orbiter's primary scientific objectives were to image the Martian surface and clouds, determine the temperature on Mars, study the topography, composition, and physical properties of the surface, measure properties of the atmosphere, monitor the solar wind and the interplanetary and Martian magnetic fields, and act as a communications relay to send signals from the landers to Earth. The instruments composing the orbiter included an IR spectrometer, an IR radiometer, UV photometer, two photopolarimeters, spectrometer, bi-static radar mapping equipment, triaxial magnetometer, a UV camera, a standard camera, six electrostatic analyzers, two modulation ion traps, low-energy photon alpha detector, a low-energy electron detector, three semiconductor counters, and two gas discharge counters. Now let's move on to the lander. Both Mars 2 and 3's descent module were mounted on the bus-slash-orbiter opposite the propulsion system. The lander consisted of a spherical 1.2 meter diameter landing capsule, a 2.9 meter diameter conical aerodynamic braking shield, a parachute system, and retro rockets. The entire descent module had a fuel mass of 1,210 kilograms. The spherical landing capsule accounted for 358 kilograms of this. An automatic control system consisting of gas micro-engines and pressurized nitrogen containers provided the attitude control. Four solid-fuel motors were mounted to the outer edges of the cone to control pitch and yaw. The main and auxiliary parachutes, the engine to initiate the landing, and the radar altimeter were mounted on the top section of the lander. Foam was used to absorb shock within the descent module. The landing capsule had four triangular pedals which would open after landing, riding the spacecraft and exposing the instrumentation. The lander was equipped with two television cameras with a 360-degree view of the surface 
as well as a mass spectrometer to study atmospheric composition, temperature, pressure, and wind sensors, and devices to measure mechanical and chemical properties of the surface, including a mechanical scoop to search for organic materials and signs of life. It also contained a pennant with the Soviet coat of arms. Four aerials protruded from the top of the spear to provide communications with the orbiter via an onboard radio system. The equipment was powered by batteries which were charged by the orbiter prior to separation. Temperature control was maintained through thermal insulation and a system of radiators. The landing capsule was sterilized before launch to prevent contamination of the Martian environment. As a bonus feature, both landers contained a small rover called Prop-M. Mars 2 and 3 rovers were small, weighing in at only 4.5 kilograms. The rover which would step across the surface on skis while connected to the lander with a 15-meter umbilical cord. Two small metal rods were used for autonomous obstacle avoidance because radio signals from Earth would take too long to drive the rovers using remote control. The rover carried a dynamic penetrometer and a radiation densometer. The main Prop-M frame was a squat box with a small protrusion at the center. The frame was supported on two wide flat skis, one extending down from each side, elevating the frame slightly above the surface. The rover was planned to be placed on the surface after landing by a manipulator arm and to move in the field of view of the television cameras and stop to make measurements every 1.5 meters. The traces of movement in the Martian soil would also be recorded to determine material properties. Okay, now that we have covered the hardware, Let's move on to the flights of Mars 2 and 3. On May 19, 1971, the Proton-K heavy launch vehicle launched Mars 2 from Baikonur Cosmodrome. After the first stage separated, the second stage was ignited. The third stage engine blasted Mars 2 into the parking orbit. Then the Block D upper stage sent Mars 2 on a trans Mars trajectory. Nine days later, via an identical launch vehicle, Mars 3 was launched from Baikonur. This is how Deputy Chief Designer for OKB-1 Boris Chertok described the launch. Quote, the red disk of the sun was just touching the horizon and dramatically illuminated the rocket as it lifted off with a roar. Separation of the stages took place like a color animation display against the background of the darkened sky." End quote. 
Soon the first reports about the beginning of Mars 3's seven-month flight to Mars arrived from Yevpatoria and Moscow ballistic centers. According to the preliminary data, Mars 3 was off course by 1.25 million kilometers instead of the calculated figure of no more than 250,000 kilometers. Obviously, to correct an error of that magnitude, they would have to use up precious fuel. Additionally, Mars 3 suffered from a partial fuel loss during the trip to Mars and did not have enough to put itself into a planned 25-hour orbit of Mars. The engine instead performed a truncated burn to put the spacecraft into a highly elliptical long period of 12 days, 19 hours to orbit around Mars. By coincidence, a particularly large dust storm on Mars adversely affected the mission. Recall from the previous episode, Mariner 9 arrived and successfully orbited Mars on November 14, 1971, just two weeks prior to Mars 2 and 3. Planetary scientists were surprised to find the atmosphere was thick with a planet-wide robe of dust, the largest storm ever observed. The surface was totally obscured. NASA was able to reprogram Mariner 9 to wait until the storm was over before beginning imaging. But Mars 2 and 3 did not have that capability. Thus, both Mars 2 and 3 dispatched their landers immediately after they arrived, and the orbiters used up a significant portion of their available data resources in snapping images of the featureless dust clouds below rather than the surface mapping intended for the mission. Now the landing of Mars 2. Mars 2's descent module separated from the orbiter on November 27, 1971, about four and a half hours before reaching Mars. After entering the atmosphere at approximately six kilometers per second, the descent system on the module malfunctioned, possibly because the angle of entry was too steep. The descent sequence did not operate as planned and the parachute did not deploy. The descent module became the first human-made object to impact the surface of Mars. The exact crash site is unknown, but is estimated to be 45 degrees south by 313 degrees west. Attempts to contact the probe after the crash were unsuccessful. Now let's move on to Mars 3's landing. Mars 3's descent module was released at 9.14 Universal Time on December 2nd, 1971, four hours 35 minutes before reaching Mars. The descent module entered the Martian atmosphere at roughly 5.7 kilometers per second. Through aerodynamic braking, parachutes, and retro rockets, the lander achieved a soft landing at 45 degrees south by 202 degrees east and began operations. Thus, Mars 3 
became the first spacecraft to perform a soft landing on the surface of Mars. The lander began transmitting to Mars 3 orbiter 90 seconds after landing. After only a few seconds, though, transmission stopped for an unknown reason. It is not known whether the fault originated with the lander or the communications relay on the orbiter. The cause of the failure may have been related to the extremely powerful Martian dust storm taking place at the time which may have induced a coronal discharge damaging the communications system. The dust storm would also explain the poor image lighting. A partial image, 70 lines, was transmitted. According to V.G. Paramoff, the lead designer for Mars and Venus spacecraft at the Lavochkin Design Bureau, the image was a gray background with no details. But the orbiters were still functioning. The Mars 2 and 3 orbiters sent back data covering the period from December 1971 to March 1972, although transmissions continued through August. It was then announced that Mars 2 and 3 had completed their mission by August 22, 1972 after 20 orbits. The lander combined with the orbiters sent back a total of 60 pictures. The images and data revealed mountains as high as 22 kilometers, atomic hydrogen and oxygen in the upper atmosphere, surface temperatures ranging from minus 110 degrees C to plus 13 degrees C, surface pressures of 5.5 to 6 millibars, water vapor concentrations 5,000 times less than in Earth's atmosphere, the base of the ionosphere starting at 80 to 110 kilometers altitude and grains from dust storms as high as 7 kilometers in the atmosphere. The images and data enabled creation of surface relief maps and gave information on the Martian gravity and magnetic fields. But that is not the end of the story. On April 11, 2013, NASA announced that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter may have imaged the Mars 3 lander hardware on the surface of Mars. The high-rise camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took images of what may be the parachute, retro rockets, heat shield, and lander. This discovery was made by amateur space enthusiasts looking through publicly available archived images. Before I finish this episode, I want to give a quick update on what happened with the Soviet's Luna program during 1971. Hope you recall that the Luna program was a series of robotic spacecraft missions sent to the moon by the Soviet Union between 1959 and 1976. I have covered the Luna program since its beginning on episodes 13, 18, 70, 75, 200, and 291. So this will just be a quick update as there wasn't a whole lot going on with the program in 1971. Basically, there were two flights 
in 71, Luna 18, and Luna 19. Luna 18 was the seventh Soviet attempt to recover soil samples from the surface of the moon, and the first after the success of Luna 16. Luna 18 was launched on a Proton K with a Block D four-stage and placed in an Earth parking orbit on September 2, 1971. It was then sent towards the moon and on September 7, 1971, it entered lunar orbit. The spacecraft completed 85 communication sessions and 54 lunar orbits before it was sent towards the lunar surface by use of braking rockets. However, all did not go well. Contact with the spacecraft was lost at 7.48 Universal Time at the previously determined point of lunar landing. Instead of soft landing, the probe impacted the moon on September 11, 1971 at 3 degrees 34 minutes north, 56 degrees 30 minutes east in a rugged, mountainous terrain near the edge of the Sea of Fertility. Signals ceased at the moment of impact. Officially, the Soviets announced that the lunar landing in the complex mountainous conditions proved to be unfavorable. Later in 1975, the Soviets published data from Luna 18's continuous wave radio altimeter that determined the mean density of the lunar topsoil. Now let's finish up with Luna 19. Luna 19 was a lunar orbiter tasked with the objective to continue the systematic study of lunar gravitational fields and locations of mass cons, as well as study the lunar radiation environment, the gamma active lunar surface, and the solar wind. Additionally, photographic coverage via a television system was to be provided. Luna 19 was the first of the advanced lunar orbiters whose design was based upon the same YE-8 class bus used for the lunar rovers and the sample collectors. For these orbiters, designated YE-8LS, the basic lander stage was substituted with a wheelless Lanark hood-like frame that housed all scientific instrumentation in a pressurized container. Luna 19 was launched on a Proton K with a Block D four stage into an Earth parking orbit on 28th of September 1971. And from this orbit was sent towards the moon. Luna 19 entered an orbit around the moon on October 2nd, 1971. The initial orbital parameters were 140 by 140 kilometers at a 40.58 degree inclination. Soon afterwards, the spacecraft began its main imaging mission, providing panoramic images of the mountainous region of the moon between 30 degrees and 60 degrees south latitude and between 20 and 80 degrees east longitude. 
Other scientific experiments included extensive studies on the shape and strength of the lunar gravitational field and the location of the mass cons. Occultation experiments in May and June 1972 allowed scientists to determine the concentration of charged particles at an altitude of 10 kilometers. Additional studies of the solar wind were evidently coordinated with those performed by the Mars 2 and 3 orbiters and Venera's 7 and 8. Communications with Luna 19 were lost on November 1, 1972 after a year of operation and more than 4,000 orbits around the moon. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 382 of the SRH podcast entitled Mars 2 and 3 and Luna 18 and 19. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. The 2022 donors page is up to date so please go by the website to make sure your name is there at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji if there's a problem please don't hesitate to let us know by emailing spacerockethistory at gmail.com two quick reminders if you need to contact me please use the new email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com Don't use the old one, as it has been out of service for several months. And two, if you like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for around six months. If you don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. Make your check payable to Michael Annis. Our next episode should appear by February 24th. We will have a special celebration of nine years of the Space Rocket History podcast. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 204 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Now, if we have been having some problems with Google Podcasts, so... With them, you have to type in the exact full name of the podcast to find it. Space Rocket History Archive. Or else it will not find it. Uh, I don't know why. And I don't know why that's changed. It's just something that Google decided to do. And, by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now is an excellent time to complete it. I have a few afterthoughts. I want to apologize for my voice. Uh, We've been sick the past couple of weeks, and uh, we think 
It could have been the Omicron, but we uh, are not sure. Anyway, sorry for the voice. I was, I was glad I was able to speak at all. Mars 2's lander crashed on the red planet, but it was still the first human-made object on Mars. And Mars 3's lander actually got there with a soft landing. The first lander on Mars. It didn't last long, but it made it through that dust storm. Seems like the Soviets could design their probes so they could wait for a signal from Earth before landing instead of doing it automatically. I guess they didn't anticipate the storm, and no one really did. What impressed me the most was the little rover they had as part of the lander. I would have loved to see that work. I hope you will take the time to look at the picture of it on the website. It's just a box with two skis on the side. A front and back lever rotate to move the skis, and it kind of steps along. Pretty neat. Too bad it didn't have a chance to work. But wasn't it great that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter photographed it? Proof positive it was there. As far as upcoming episodes go, I have about four unmanned spacecraft to cover to finish up 1971, and then it will be on to 1972. Hope to be at Skylab before too long, and I'm already collecting resources, and of course, next week, we're going to have the ninth anniversary episode. For those interested in the farm progress, uh, nothing was done about the leak in the 12-foot-long trench in the basement floor. The gas fireplace ceramic is still broken. No work was done on it. The window that was broken by the sheetrock delivery people was finally replaced. But they made a muddy mess on the walls and the windows doing so. The exterior vinyl siding uh, was still not installed where the window had been broken. They still did not install the final metal pole floor support in the basement. They still haven't trimmed around one of the front windows, and then they'll also have to retrim around the new window in the bedroom. The doors that were not ordered are finally here. They're not installed. The carpet was not installed, but the good news is we got our wide shower installed. The bad news is they had to cut a big hole in the wall and took out two doors to do it. So that's going to have to be fixed. The final electrical work has been started. The outdoor HVAC unit has been set but not connected. The septic tank was installed. That was a big deal. The plumbers did a little work putting on some faucets. So we did get a fair amount of work done over the past couple of weeks. Will we meet our settlement date of March 4th? At this point, I kind of doubt it. I think they will be at least a week late, maybe two weeks.
Moving on, over the past two weeks, we have several contributions and increases on Patreon. I'd like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who donated at the Voyager level and earned a shooting star emoji. Dale W. donated at the Orion level and earned a rocket emoji. Wayne and Naomi Holmes from Washington donated at the Salyut Skylab level and earned a space communications dish emoji. Graham M. from Australia donated at the Apollo level and earned a space communications dish emoji. James P. from Texas donated at the Apollo level and earned an alien emoji. Stephan F. from Germany donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Daniel S. from Bowling Green, Kentucky donated at the Apollo level and earned a satellite emoji. Colin S. from Pennsylvania donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. Peter M. from California donated at the Vostok level and earned a galaxy emoji. And Stu H. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreons, sadly, have gone down to 249. We gained one but lost four. Our goal is still, like it has been for years, to reach 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 286 with an overall goal of 500 for 2022. So, if you're enjoying the podcast that has been running almost nine years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com clicking on the orange donate button or the patreon link now here's mrs srh with this episode's donor giveaway thanks mike hello space rocket history friends the winner of this episode's drawing will get the choice of a space rocket history magnet or the srh archive magnet or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Kevin Snyder. Kevin Snyder, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, to tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Remember, that's spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Sincere thanks to all 286 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were NASA, Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, The Secret Landings on Mars by Dark Space, The Soviet Space Program by Eugen Reichel, Space Race by Deborah Cadbury, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 383 posted by February 24th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.